0: good morning how are you all doing you doing well good well finally the weather has arrived that people have been threatening they, they told me that you know you need to wait a little while because it gets hotter and then more humid and I thought that it was just like England here I thought it rained a lot stayed around 70 and uh, here we are so it's, uh, it's a, a whole new adventure for me and Sally every day every week Every Sunday, we, uh, we have a marvelous time here. We had the, um, the staff and elders round to our house for desserts on Thursday, and it was great to, uh, to welcome folks into our home. And what that, what that represents is something that, that Sally and I have come to believe in absolutely, and that is that really the, the Christian life is... Lived out in orbital patterns. It's lived out in orbital patterns. And uh, I'm going to read to you now from Acts chapter 2, the verses that immediately after the 3,000 come to Christ on the day of Pentecost, after Peter preaches. On that amazing day that was the the birthday of the church, I'm going to read to you just a few verses, and then we're going to look at the patterns that underlie what it is that Luke is writing and recording for us here. So let's look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. The new believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need." Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this this picture that we have of the very first day that the church exists. There is a day before this day, the day before the the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem, when the disciples of Jesus were simply that. They were the followers of the rabbi Jesus who had been brutally tortured and crucified and whom they claimed had risen from the dead. But then on the day of Pentecost, just as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit came upon the gathered disciples, now not simply 12, but 120. And all of them gathered in that large upper room. Getting 120 people in an upper room would be, um, that's a big room. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. And the symbols of God's presence, wind and fire that have symbolised God's presence for centuries through the Old Testament and among the ancient people of God. The symbols of wind and fire settle upon the 120 gathered. And instead of there being a cloud above the temple, a cloud by day and a column of fire by night, now Fire is above every believer in that room, indicating that where once God was found in one place, now God is found in the lives of every follower of Jesus. And of course, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, The Holy Spirit comes to take residence in their life so that individually and collectively they are now the container of God's presence. And they are thrust out onto the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming the glory of God and sharing the good news of Jesus. And the crowd mystified why it would be on such a day at nine o'clock in the morning when people are still having their morning coffee and they've maybe just had a croissant or something like that. Maybe not a croissant, but you know what I mean. And maybe not coffee, but you, you know what I mean. This is kind of the morning and everything's kind of just getting started and the radio's on and, and there's these people and they're crazy. And they're assuming that there must be some explanation for this. Are they drunk? And so some begin to sneer and some begin to inquire and Peter stands up among the 12, gathered in the 120 and preaches the definitive sermon of the Christian church. The definitive sermon of the Christian church and the reason it's definitive is because it's the very first one. And so as he preaches, he defines how all preachers should prepare and how all preachers should structure and think through what it is that they're going to be teaching and preaching on. But the result of that preaching and the result of that infilling of the Holy Spirit is just as remarkable as the sermon itself because the church is catapulted into a life that is now definitive for the church down through the ages. It's it's a life, it's a picture, it's it's a structure of life that is an orbital pattern. Just as in the ancient texts of the Old Testament, the people of God would orbit through Jerusalem on the great festivals. And as after the, after the uh, exile and their return from Babylon, the people would orbit through the synagogue, the synagogue that was invented during exile, because there, of course there's no temple available. And just in the same way that, that children, as they grew up, would orbit through their homes on perhaps Sabbath, and come and share a Sabbath meal in that same way. So the church establishes an orbital pattern for the household of Christians. And so as to underline this orbital pattern, this this continuum between a great gathering and a church meeting in a home, so as to underline this, this reality, the Holy Spirit has the earliest believers take on this framework of life, take on this this way of living on a daily basis. Every day, they met in the temple and in their homes. Now, uh, for us, uh, uh, Sally and I, over the years, we've noted that this this pattern of, of orbital life is the thing that God begins to do as... You see him working in you and working among the people that you serve. A young woman called Jo Saxton, some of you may know her from her her teaching ministry. Uh, She has a very large and extensive uh, social media following as uh, so many of the uh, the younger leaders do these days. Jo Saxton uh, came to Sheffield where Sally and I lived and we were uh, leading a church there. And she was really struggling with life. She had seen much brokenness. She'd come out of a very uh, urban and um, under-resourced environment. Her family were Nigerian and um, they had struggled with all of the institutional racism that is is apparent in many of the Western uh, nations. But she was a remarkable young woman and had been given a place at Oxford University. But she declined the place because she believed that God was calling her to train to be a Christian leader, and she came to Sheffield really not on a women of prayer, but very much in faith, asking God to show her what she should do. She took up a she took up a degree in in Bible uh, studies, and she began to attend our church and. Uh, we, we noted her, we, we spotted her. She came to talk to us after the service one time, and we said, well, come around to our house for a cup of tea. Now, that's the thing that you say to people in England if you're being nice to them. Um, and so she came around one afternoon, had a cup of tea with us and, and a piece of cake, and, and then the next day she came round, and then the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that. And she'll tell you, it was like almost every day. And she said, she said, miraculously, I always seemed to turn up just as they were eating. <laughs> she said it was completely by accident. But somehow I always got there when the breens were gathered around the table and they always made a space for me and she joined us. Now, Joe is one of the most sought after speakers in the world today and um, is a remarkable mother a remarkable wife, a remarkable leader, a remarkable teacher. And um, she is just but one example of the way in which we have noticed over the years that, that God has orbited through our life and then we together have orbited through the gathered church expression uh, life together this pattern of, of orbital existence. And it's only recently that I found a metaphor that helped me understand what was going on. It was in uh, 2012 when the world was was captured by what CNN called Higsteria. The Higgs boson was discovered by the team of physicists and other kinds of scientists in CERN. CERN is the great research facility dug deep underground. It's a a 27-kilometer circular laboratory on the French and Swiss border. Higgs, the uh, well-known in those circles, uh, Scottish physicist in the 60s, suggested that creation had to have some explanations Where did all the mass in the universe come from? And and how was it created? Now, Higgs and other physicists, many of them believers, are not questioning whether there is a creator behind it all. It's just how does God do it? Really, the the foundation of science is not anything that's that's in opposition to faith. Science has always been based on this principle question. It came out of... This, this, principle, this principle inquiry. God made everything, but how did he do it? And it's an entirely legitimate question. And so there was this, there was this question in the, in the scientific community as to where does all the mass come from? And, and Higgs suggested that there was a field called a boson field through which particles that had no mass would pass and they would acquire mass, and therefore, by acquiring mass, a little bit like, you know, if you dropped a pea into a bucket of molasses, yeah? Just imagine it, if you can, so here's, you've you've got a handful of peas, and you've got a bucket of molasses, and you drop the peas into the molasses, and then you take the peas out, the peas are gonna be thicker than they were when they went in, Yeah? I even got an amen for that, so that that's got to be good. So, so we're so we're acquiring mass by going through the Higgs boson, and um, of course, you know, being a weird Bible scholar type, I I remembered, I noted that the word for glory in the Old Testament scriptures, kavod, is actually the word that really means weight, mass. Isn't that interesting? So the New Testament word, doxa, is kind of bright, shiny stuff. But, but it, it translates this Hebrew word, kavod, that, that, that says God's presence is like a weight. It's like, a, it's like an unseen mass all around you. And you can, you, can, you can be certain that it's tangible even though it's not really observable. It's not an empirical thing, but it is a tangible thing. There are lots of things in life that are not empirical, but they're tangible and, and this, this this sense of God's glory. And it was just so clear to me that, of course, God's glory is an attribute of his presence. And so wherever his presence is found, his glory is found. And so as you are engaging in the presence of God, Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my name to recognize me, to to welcome me, to to articulate my identity, then I'm present, says Jesus. Jesus. And there's a, there's a spiritual mass. There's a weightiness about that gathering. And people pick up that weight and they grow in a kind of gravitas. They grow in a kind of character formation and develop them that makes them a more weighty person. Have you met people that you feel like, you know, that's a weighty person, I, there's, there's something about that person. They've got, they've got more about them than the average. Do you know what I mean? That's what's going on when the people of God gather as they do today. As you are gathering today, you're making an intentional decision to come and gather with the people of God and Jesus promises that just as he's present in the life of every believer, there is an extra blessing, which is his presence pervades our gathering because he promises to be here with us. And so there's a weightiness. And what happens in that weightiness is that as we orbit through, we acquire spiritual mass, we grow, we develop we mature. We become more weighty people. And I've noted it over many, many years now that that people who hang out intentionally with brothers and sisters tend to grow more successfully. And here in the early church, the continuum of life was gathering with a whole band of believers in Solomon's portico. We've, we've, uh, we've been able to do the archeology span on, on Temple Mount and we, we know how large the temple portico was. It was gigantic, thousands of people could gather in Solomon's portico. But then they would gather in their homes and they would gather with glad and sincere hearts. And it would appear as though, it would appear as though This this red hot center of the gathering produced other red hot centers around which other individuals would go. So there would be a house, a household church, and there would be a temple. and they would add to the life of the people who gathered there. When you, when you see this reality, you, you note that there are some things that are, that are very interesting about it. The temple. Well, what, what, what happens at the temple and, and what happens? The, the Greek word for, for household or extended family in which the church took place is the word oikos. So the house church had certain things going on in it and the temple had other things in it. Uh, Acts 2, 42 says the apostles' teaching took place here. Well, that's great, isn't it? But what about, what about koinonia, the, the Greek word that we translate as fellowship? Well, it's a lot easier to have fellowship over here. Yeah? Do you see where we're going with this? Acts 2.42 gives us these four legs of the Christian life. But the four legs are operating in different ways at different parts of the continuum. And so, and so the people in the house churches are, are orbiting through to get teaching and training. Later on when we see, we see the same pattern emerge, really we, we barely are able to discern it in Antioch because we don't have enough material by Luke. But when we get to say Acts 19 and verse nine and following, we begin to see precisely the same pattern emerge in Ephesus. Perhaps the single greatest achievement of Paul's missionary journeys. He plants a church that will be the most significant church for the next 400 years. Ephesus will define the life of the Christian faith for 400 years. He'll hand it on to Timothy. Timothy will Go on, he may well have died during a persecution. And then John the Apostle will arrive with Mary the mother of Jesus, an ancient old lady. Jesus has, has, as we saw I think on, on Good Friday, Jesus has given Mary to John and John to Mary and he takes her with him even on this last journey to Ephesus and John is an old man himself but but Mary is ancient and she dies in Ephesus, and you can go and visit her grave to this day. And so this apostolic center in Ephesus becomes this significant church. And it's a church that Paul describes like this. He says in Acts 20, 20, he says, You know my ministry among you. He's talking to the elders, people like Renis and Mark, you know, he gathered more there on the beach. And, and he says to them, You know, you know my ministry among you in public and from oikos to oikos from house to house now what does the public part look like well in acts 19 verse 9 and following verse 10 is the is the crucial bit we discover that at particular times in the day paul rented a lecture hall very much like this lecture halls have been the same for thousands of years they're in this in this amphitheater style of architecture. It probably was more open air than this. And um, the, the, the marginal note in, inside the, the text there tells us that as uh, a scribe, soon after, soon after Luke had written uh, the Acts of the Apostles, puts a little uh, scribal text in there to tell us when it took place. It took place during the siesta hours between 12 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Paul, every day, it says every day, would train people, disciple people through the Socratic model of discussion. And Paul puts it like this, he says he says uh, to the Colossians in chapter one, verse seven, he says, I've never met you, he says to the Colossian church, I've never met you, I've never journeyed to your city, but I have a representative who I sent to you on my behalf, to do the ministry of Christ, and his name is Epaphras. And so he he describes this orbital pattern of sending people out into the region called Asia around Ephesus, and he sends out a missionary, and he plants a church from a household into the city of Colossae. And we're told from the ancient historical writings that the churches of, of Asia Minor, the seven churches that we've studied, were all planted during this time along with Colossae and Hierapolis. So maybe nine or 10 churches were planted during this time. And, and Luke puts it like this. He says, every day, Paul had discussions in the hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus, by the way, means tyrant. And so the professor that owned this building must have been a fearsome character. Imagine that. Who are you being taught by? I'm being taught by the tyrant. <laughs> so the Hall of Tyrannus becomes this place where, where people are trained and formed and sent. And, and Luke puts it like this he says, In this way, in this way, all the Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia heard the gospel of Jesus. Imagine, in this way. And so we see that not only in Jerusalem is there this definitive pattern of gathering and house church, but also when we get to Ephesus, we see the pattern again emerge that there is apostolic teaching and then in the homes, there are people gathered for Christian fellowship, fellowship that's described to us in the other letters of the New Testament. All of the letters of the New Testament are not written to a church like this, but are written to churches like our house churches that, where persecution was not present, were able maybe to gather like this, but they were addressed to the house churches. And the description of worship, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 through 14, which people have often pored over and wondered, how does this all fit with a Sunday service? Well, frankly, it doesn't fit with a Sunday service because it's not addressed to that. It's addressed to a house church. So this is the way house churches should function. And in the house church, as Luke tells us here, you have the breaking of bread. And in the gathering, it doesn't always put it in the English translation, but it does actually say in the Greek, the prayers. Now what that would suggest is that the three times of prayer that are held at the temple were the times when the disciples all gathered. And we know in chapter three that Peter and John are on their way to the time of prayer in the late afternoon and evening. And it's then that they, that they see the man at the beautiful gate, the, the beggar, and they heal him. So here, here is a pattern that is emerging for us. And let me, let me just be absolutely clear. There's no doubt in my mind that this is the definitive pattern for the Christian church. Generally what the church has done is it has lost all of this and tried to put all of this into here and to live church at one end of the continuum. So now we just have a box in which church takes place and not a continuum that can provide the opportunity for the orbital patterns of spiritual growth and life. Does that make sense? Now you can see, I think, Why it is that I'm tremendously blessed to to feel as though I've been called to be one among you. Because there are so few churches like Apex who whether they've done it intentionally or accidentally, who cares, have set their life up to express this definitive pattern. I've spent Almost my whole adult career as a church leader, helping church leaders get the continuum back, training them in how to have missional communities and house churches. I mean, and they're sitting there going, Yeah, but I, I mean, how do we do that? And I said, Well, you've got to train the people up and, you know, just send them out. Yeah, but they're never going to come back on Sundays. All right, then. And then, you know, we have these kind of revolutions in the congregations where the people say, Whoa wait a minute, we want to live like peasants. We don't want to live like this. We're supposed to get fed every week, not sent out every week. What's this? (laughs) See, this is great for orthodoxy. It's not very good for orthopraxy. Orthopraxy um, is the Latin word for common practice, true practice, authentic practice. You can, you can be right by having the, the good doctrine, but it's hard to be like Jesus unless you've got the right practice as well. Because Jesus did stuff Yeah? There was a word of Jesus. There was a way of Jesus, and there were works of Jesus. So if we don't know how to do the way and the works of Jesus, we've only got just a little worn-down nub of what it means to be a disciple. And so what we need is a a way, a life, a, a means by which we can express that life. And right at the very beginning, on the very first day of the church's life, a continuum was established. And it wasn't con- established on a religious framework because by the time that Paul got to Ephesus, there were no temples that it were available to him. And so he just did it in a public space. But the continuum was the same. There was a gathering. And in the gathering, there was t- teaching and training. There was the opportunity for prayer. There was, there was the experience of gathering together to see modeled for the the, the gathering of believers, what it means to, to, to enter into the works and the way of Jesus. And so it talks about the apostles healing the sick. Well, that's great that healing takes place here. But here's the thing. This is chapter two of Acts, yeah? By the time we get to chapter eight, all of this is closed down by Persecution. And James probably writes the first letter of the New Testament. James, the brother of Jesus, he's now ascended to a kind of eldership over the church in, in Jerusalem. The apostles are up to their apostling, and so they need an elder to take, care of the, to take care of the church, and James is the first elder, and more than likely wrote the first document of the New Testament. He writes the letter of James, and he sends it out, and when he sends it out, chapter five, verse 12, he says, if you need healing, if you need healing, then do it in your home. Do it in your home. And you can imagine those first Christians saying, what, without Peter? How do we do that? And James says, just call the elders. They'll anoint you with oil, they'll pray for you and you'll get well. Yeah, but I mean... Are we being pastorally insensitive, James? Probably. I'm just trying to give you a pattern here. You're supposed to be doing it in your home. And so, what does all this mean just for us right now as we're just thinking about this and kind of getting down to the granular detail of what it might mean for a new season and a a new phase of life together? Well, of course, Sundays, you've got an idea that that Perhaps I'm not going to go for the feudal model. Maybe you were here last week and you kind of got that impression. But that doesn't mean that people who come on Sundays are not going to be trained and resourced. Here's a cool idea. How about this? We put all of the house churches on a rotation and they, they fill the need for a prayer team on a Sunday. How about that? Okay, so just say, just say this row over here is a house church, yeah? And maybe there's a few other people too. And uh, you, you, you say, oh what does this mean? I say, well, I mean, you can bring the kids and give them to Kevin as you arrive at 8 o'clock, because he won't mind. And Because uh, he'll just take care of them and he'll put them in my office and close the door probably. But... <laughs> and you'll arrive here and you'll pray with the rest of the Sunday team and then I'll just do like a five or 10 minute reminder. Okay, so this is how we pray for the sick. And you'll go, okay. And you'll be really, really keen on listening because any minute now, you're gonna be praying for the sick. So it's a really easy way to learn this. See what I mean? So, it's not like kind of theory stuff where you're getting it from the sermon. You think, oh, I could take a few notes down and go and pray about that for a few months. No, no, it's not like that. It's, you're coming on that Sunday, and it's the, these are the three things to remember. Remember? And you go, okay, okay then. What if we get cancer? You'd pray exactly the same for a headache or cancer because it's Jesus that's doing it. Amen. And our Father wants His children well. Amen. He wants His children well. Which of you fathers, Jesus says, whose son asks for bread? Bread is a description of healing. The woman, the Syrophoenician woman comes for healing to Jesus and he he says, he's he's trying to challenge her to see if her faith is real. He says, well, I can't give you the bread of the children. The bread of the children, healing? Healing? Which of you fathers, says Jesus, whose son comes and asks for bread, gives him a stone? If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, will not your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? Is there anybody who's alive in the building at this moment? Back to preaching in the library. Everybody hopes that they'll be quiet soon. But you, do you see what I mean? I mean, that would be cool, wouldn't it? So we do the kind of healing stuff here at the gathering, and we're not going to do it, you know, we're not going to do all the James Brown stuff. You know, there's nobody with a cloak or white clothes or throwing jackets over people or all that rubbish. We're not going to do all that. We're going to do it the way Jesus did it because he didn't do it like that, did he? Not on this swooning and throwing jackets, and I mean we're not doing any of that. We're just doing what Jesus models for us. Why? Because we've got to take it back here. We've got to take it back here, haven't we? Hello. <laughs> You're all going. Well, uh, I guess so. I don't sure. What? What if there's a demon? Well, it's the same deal. What if the person's dead? Well, it's the same, deal. I'm sorry, but it's, I, you know, I'm not raised any dead people, but some of my friends have, and it's very exciting. Jesus sent out the 12, and he said, I give you my authority to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to cleanse lepers, and to raise the dead. And then he says in the Great Commission, I'm sending you out to all nations, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I taught you to do. So we can't avoid it. This has got nothing to do with being a charismatic or a Pentecostal or somebody who isn't a Baptist. Or It's got nothing to do with that. It's about whether you believe that the first disciples learned this stuff from Jesus, and as disciples in the 21st century, we're supposed to learn it too. How about that? Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be fun? And likewise, likewise. I mean, one of the things I've talked to the elders about that I'm gonna start right on the beginning of September is we're just gonna have a prayer time every day here. Now, of course, when do you choose the prayer time? It's not gonna suit most people because they're at work and they've got children and all that kind of stuff, but we're gonna pray anyway, every day. So we'll pray here every day, 830 and right after the 8.30 thing, we'll, we'll pray for people who want to be prayed for if there's particular needs that they have, healing or, or counsel or whatever. But we'll do that Monday through f- Friday so that, so that now, now we begin to see that maybe this amazing asset that God's given us, this incredible, I mean, look at this place. It's amazing. I mean, I know it's like a kind of smoking lounge from the 1970s, but it's... <laughs> I mean, I know that, but but it's awesome too, isn't it? And you know, we wait long enough, this color will come back into, into style. It's not gonna be long now. I can feel it coming. But, but here's the thing, here's the thing. As we gather into this building, it's a principal resource that God's given us. Why would we not steward it? Why would we not pray here every day? Why would we not do that? I mean, like Christian stuff. <laughs> and if you've got things that you need counsel about, well, take some time off work and come at 8.30 and we'll pray and see what I mean? Well, what about, what about the teaching and the, and the training? Well, you saw just this summer we're gonna do naturally supernatural stuff, which is learning how to do the things of Jesus without weirdness. So what we're gonna to try to do. Yeah? Naturally supernatural stuff. So we'll, we'll do that during the August thing, and then, and then we'll have our, a learning community immersion in October on Family on Mission, which will give us some ideas of what to do in our house church as our house church begins to step out more intentionally into mission that God is defining for us. And I know many of you are doing that already, but, but we'll get some teaching and some training on that. But here's the thing. I think that this facility, this resource, ought to have that available a lot. And so young people, and they'll be, they're not awake right now, they're coming to the second service, but young people, young people, there are actually some young people up there, they're just hiding in the balcony. Um, Young people, along with people in that period of life where they're thinking about a transition. So maybe you're my age or maybe you're a bit younger, and you're at that kind of half-time point in your life where you're thinking, okay, so what does the sef- second half look like? And maybe you're saying, well, I, th- I think I, I don't know, I, wanna, I think I want to change job, I want to, I've talked to lots of people like that. So, male, female, doesn't matter. If you're a young person seeking to plot the course of your life, or You're a more mature person seeking to reassess the course of your life and maybe saying that the second half of your life will take a different trajectory. We'll just have an intern program for you starting this October. This October, we'll start this October. It'll be a soft launch. We're not going to do it with fanfares and razzmatazz or anything like that. Just gather, teach every day, train every day. It'll take about 20 hours a week, so you'll need a job to stay alive get another kind of job for 20 hours, and, and we'll just learn together. Now, already there are a few people who've said that they want to do this. A really old person asked me, Mark Eilers, I don't know how old he is. He said he wanted to do it. I said, you're an elder. He said, that's all right, I still want to do it. I said, great. A fantastic example for everybody. So we can do this We can do this. We can can begin to say, maybe, maybe there is a resource in the place of gathering. Of course, we're not going to call it a temple. We don't want to put all religious baggage on it. But but there is a place for the resourcing of the gathering place. And what happens? It filters through and is delivered, not, not in the big space, but in the smaller space of the house church. You see, what so often happens at this end is what you might call something that is organized. It's hard to do anything in public without an organized approach to things. But at this end, it can be much more organic. Quite honestly, It would strike me that that when you read the text of the Acts of the Apostles, what was happening here was really quite attractional. Because, you know, people could hang out and see what was going on without feeling like they were being dragged in. Have you noticed how many times Luke says, nobody really wanted to join them, but nevertheless, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So people are able to come and they're, they're kind of attracted to what Jesus is doing amongst his people and they could kind of just, just stand back a little bit and then the tractor beam of his love would just drag them in. Yeah? That, that picture, I think, is a really... Really helpful picture. But of course, whatever's attractional there is missional here. So we don't have to have this hard division between the attractional church and the missional church. We don't have to have a division between something that's invitational and something that is challenging. It's hard for people to join your house church. Have you noticed that? Because they think you're weird. <laughs> you know, they you know you're nice weird, but you, they see at work and you're kind of different to everybody else, and you don't curse like they do, and you don't drink like and, you know it's all these different things about. You. And so they kind of I don't know. I mean, but maybe you could start them out by bringing them on a Sunday. Maybe they could kind of get used to what Christians do. This pattern, this this life where we see the church in a continuum between what the church in Acts called the temple and the oikos, that's that's a reality that you and I can be part of. And it's dynamic, and it's exciting, it's challenging, it's engaging, and it takes us on to the new season of what God has for us. So I'm particularly excited that God would have brought Sally and I to such an amazing group of people that have worked this out beforehand. This biblical model, and I truly think that in the same way as I said last week, Dayton has been known as a place of innovation. I truly think that where it was technology, now it will be Ecclesiology, the, the understanding of what the church is. And this remarkable center of innovation that God has raised up here at Apex, and you, you look at it and you think, I don't know, I mean it feels like it's change and difficulty and struggle. Well, you know, when when you're forming a prototype, do you know what you do? You test it to destruction. you're forming a prototype. You don't give it a pass. You put pressure on it and allow it to become strong in its very elemental sense. And you stretch it and you, and you strain it so that, so that it becomes the thing that you're looking for. You see, I think God is looking for a model of church that will emerge in the West that will give an alternative to the mega, which just simply perpetuates the feudal model. Not intentionally, they're not bad people, it's just the way it is. There's a difference between a meta and a mega church. A meta, meta being of, so meta narrative, story of stories. Metachurch, church of churches. The metachurch is the model Of Apex, and is the model that God is going to innovate and develop and celebrate here. And He's tested the prototype to its very breaking, and you've proved faithful. And it's going to be a great day, this new day. Do we have an amen in the room? Amen. Amen. We're going, to, um, we're going to pray uh, in, in a moment. We're going to uh, pray for two, uh, two types of things. We're going to pray for Julie and Renis. They're on their way to India any minute. So we're going to pray for them uh, during the singing of our last song. The worship team's going to come up. And for any who this Sunday believe that God's been speaking to you. Uh, I've said this before. When God speaks we need to respond. And response is not simply something that human beings can do inside their head. Otherwise, God would not have given you a body. And you still have a body in heaven because Jesus has a body in heaven. So I'm assuming that the way that we're able to fully respond is by the use of what's inside and the use of what's outside. So if God is speaking to you, And he's saying to you, come on then, are you in for this? Then use your body to indicate that. And come and pray, and the worship team uh, will sing, and the prayer team will pray. And uh, whilst all of that's going on, we'll be praying for Renis and Julie as well.